Amen. How's it going today? Good. Anybody else uh, distracted by the ladybugs flying around? Oh man, I don't. They're not ladybugs. Where are they, Don? You know what they are. What? Asian beetles? Orange ladybugs. Evil ladybugs. Okay, well, um, somebody asked me earlier if I had a, uh, a report from the men that went to Momentum, and um, I, they got one. They're, they're one, one guy uh, received Christ last night as their Savior. So, um, And that's the only one that I heard from, but uh, there may be more, but we're just praying God does a, a great work. Um, there were about 40 guys that, that went to Momentum this weekend, and... Um, Sounds like it's been a good weekend. Um, I don't know what we're doing here, but we probably need to turn me down or do something. Can you hear that back there? Okay. All right. So we're, we're dealing with um, a series now. This is the lie detector series. We've kind of switched focuses a little bit from what the world kind of says about you know, their disagreement with the Bible towards now things that Christians misunderstand. Okay. And... and I don't know. I mean, every time I say this, I say, well, this is one of the biggest things that people misunderstand. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe I just uh, am just focused on it this week. But uh, this issue of don't judge. If there's one passage that the world seems to know from the Bible, it's judge not, right? Like, <laughs> they'll throw that back in, in our face as often as uh, we say something is a sin, They'll say, judge not, you know, lest you be judged. So it's like, that's, that's it. There's no more discussion, no more, you know, nothing else to say about it. And, and here's the thing is that Christians tend to take that and, um, and, you, and are silenced by that. Okay, well, I'm not supposed to judge. I'll just be quiet on this issue because, you know, I don't want to do the wrong thing and say the wrong thing and be judgmental and that kind of thing. And so I said this morning before 8 o'clock service, people were coming in and we're, I was just talking to a couple folks and um, I said, I'm going to preach on, you know, um, don't judge. And uh, two, two ladies were like, well, I don't judge. I don't judge. I don't. It's like, <laughs> so just hold on. Uh, we'll, we'll get to what the message is about. But, you know, that we're so terrified that somebody's going to think that we're judging that we misunderstand what the Bible actually says. So here's what happens is that that passage is used as like a weapon against Christians oftentimes, and we either take two, two positions, one of two positions. One is we are silenced and we become very, very permissive about everything under the sun, okay? We just won't say anything to anyone about anything wrong. We'll just let everything fly. You know, we don't want to be judgmental. We'll just, I'll do me, you do you, and whatever, you know, is between you and the Lord, and he'll sort it out at the end, and, and we just are so terrified to say anything. Or we swing to the other side of the pendulum, which is that um, we become very judgmental, which is another part of this issue, which is that Christians become legalistic and hateful and cruel and mean about the things that we believe in, in how we live our life. And we don't want to be either one of those, permissive or judgmental, but it's not so much coming to the middle as understanding what the right 
biblical understanding of judging is. Making a right judgment, being humble, being honest. These are the things that we're supposed to do. So um, let's take a look at God's Word here as uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7. Let's stand as we read God's Word. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, says this, says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! Sounds kind of judgmental. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And Lord, um, this is difficult, um, but Lord, we pray for a right understanding. We pray for a right application. We pray for your Holy Spirit uh, to direct us into your will. Um, Lord, our prayer always is that we would be people who are um, determined uh, dedicated to seek and to do your will, to know what you want, to, to do what you want, to glorify you in all these things, that we would do uh, what is right, that we would do what is uh, needed, uh, that we would see the needs around us and be uh, receptive to how your spirit is leading us, Lord, to, to meet those needs. And uh, the need of our, our world is for truth. <laughs> uh, Lord, we, we have to be... Uh, determined, Lord, to speak the truth and uh, make sure that we do it in love. Lord, we thank you that you've given us all these, these things. Lord, you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us a spirit of boldness. You've given us power, and uh, you have gone before us, and you said you'd always be with us. And so, Lord, we pray again today that you would be with us as we learn uh, and as we apply for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, the context, always have to understand the context, this is Matthew chapter 7. How many of you know that Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, so we get that. So here's, here's a couple things you need to know about that. One is, um, in Matthew, you have Jesus who is baptized by John the Baptist. He receives the Holy Spirit um, in, in the form of a dove descending on him. John sees this, testifies to it. And the Spirit of God leads Jesus out into the wilderness directly from that baptism to be tempted by Satan for 40 days as he's fasting. And during that time, Satan comes and he begins to uh, test him against uh, different, some people say, different types of Messiah that Jesus could possibly be or different ways that he could execute his ministry or different ways that he could understand himself as the Messiah um, and here's what Jesus does. He comes back to Satan with Scripture over and over and over. And, and as Jesus gets to the end of that uh, testing period, he comes to understand himself, um, to confirm what his ministry is going to be and how he's ready at this moment. And probably, more than likely, what's going on is, is he understands this is the, the right time. This is the time for him to begin his ministry. And so that's Matthew chapter 4, and then Matthew chapter 5, he begins with the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus' manifesto. It is uh, the ethic of the kingdom, um, but it's also 
something else. And sometimes we don't always quite understand this. What had happened with the Jewish people is that they had received the Word of God, the law of God, the rules, the regulations, the formula, the how to have a relationship with God, how to be a people, how to do right um, sacrifices, how to do all those things. And they had taken that word and they had kind of, sometimes they did it right, sometimes they did it wrong. They, they would rebel, they would worship idols, they would fall away, they would be disciplined, they'd come back and have a reform. They would be disciplined again when they fell away again and over and over and over throughout their history. I mean, thousands of years of this cycle just going on and on and on. If you've read the Old Testament, you kind of see it's like, when are you guys going to get it, right? It's like, come on, like, finally something should happen to like wake you up and realize we're not getting this right. What do we need to do different? And so what happens is at the end of this whole cycle, you have the exile that the, the people of uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, they go to Babylon for 70 years, and they come back, they rebuild the temple, and it is as if they had um, been broken of their idolatry. Like, they, never again do you see that they, they fall into idolatry. And, and what they begin to do at that point is become very hyper-focused on trying to get everything exactly right. Say, okay, finally, we have the solution, right? They, they, they're trying to get it right. They're trying to be perfect. They're trying to make sure they, they cross all their T's and dot all their I's and, and get everything just, just so in the law. Sounds good, right? You think that sounds like a good plan? Except what happens? They become legalistic. <laughs> so here again, they, they swing from one side to the other side, and, and they just keep getting something wrong. And so here comes Jesus, who is the author of Scripture. He is God in the flesh, and he is basically, okay, he is the one who wrote the law. It's God's law. It's not man's law. He wrote the law, and now in Matthew 5, 6, 7, he's going to correctly interpret the law for them. See, one of the things that we often do when we read um, the Sermon on the Mount is we say, well, Jesus, he says, you know, well, the law says this, but I say this, and like he's like contradicting the law, but that's not what he's doing. He is telling them, here's what you've been given in the law. You've misunderstood what it means, what, how to apply it. Here's how you apply it correctly. Here's the correct interpretation of the law. And so now he's beginning to unpack that for the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the people that are really trying to get it right. He's like, okay, you want to really get it right? Then you have to understand not just the letter of the law, but also the, what? Spirit of the law. Because if you focus on the letter of the law and you miss the spirit, then what's going to happen is you're going to try to use the law to make yourself righteous and you will then condemn and judge other people based on how you're doing instead of what the law is meant to do, which is to help you to help others so that it's mutually beneficial. It's not just how you can be right. It's how you can help other people to be right with God. And as Christians, listen, <laughs> we miss this thing too. We, we, we get this wrong all the time. We think that our faith is all about us being right with God and being holy and being right and, and knowing Scripture and, and having a good relationship with God and being forgiven and going to heaven, right? All those things for me, and we miss that all those things for me are great and wonderful, but if I miss that I'm supposed to do that in order to influence other people for Christ, then I'm in trouble, 
I've become a Pharisee. I'm missing the blessing that is supposed to be pouring through me. He says, rivers of water will, will flow, what? Through you. Not just into you. The Dead Sea in Israel is an amazing place. Um, we got to go there when we visited, and it's 40, almost 40% salt, okay? The ocean, anybody been to the ocean? 4% salt, okay? I think a little less than 4% salt. How salty the ocean is, you go to the Dead Sea, it's 40% salt. It's like you, can, you, you can't sink into the Dead Sea. It's, it's just you, you, you float because it's so full of salt. It's kind of a weird place. You know, it's so full of minerals. There are, there are like, I forget how many, like 23 unique minerals that aren't found anywhere else in the world, only found at the Dead Sea because of this unique place. It's the lowest place um, on the earth, okay, above or below sea level. And here's what happens is all the water flows into it, and it doesn't flow out. It's dead. Nothing can live there. You can't live in 40% salt. No fish, no, no other animals, no, no uh, little sea creatures can live in this place. It's, it's dead. And this is what happens with people's faith when they are just taking in and taking in and taking in and trying to be right and trying to be the most holy, the most righteous without ever thinking about anyone else, is that faith becomes a dead faith. So Jesus is trying to correct that and trying to help the people to understand what right judging is. So the Pharisees had this issue. They knew that they couldn't be perfect, but they were going to try. Okay, They were going to try their hardest to be as perfect as possible. All the other people of the past had gotten it wrong. They'd sinned. They'd done wrong, to, you know, and they'd worshipped idols and all this stuff, and they're not going to do that. They're going to get it right, as right as possible. And so they began to get it as right as, as humanly possible. So let's say if, if 100% is the perfect grade, they're getting like an 87, which is really good because nobody's ever gotten an 87 before. It's like the highest grade anybody's ever gotten. So they're getting an 87 in their faith. And what they begin to do is they look down on anybody who's getting less than an 87. Oh, you're not doing everything that I'm doing? then you're just not that committed. You're not that dedicated. You're not that strong. You're not that smart. You're not that, you're not working at it hard enough. You need to work harder. And they would judge. And so Jesus says this. He says, you, you tie up these heavy loads on their backs and you don't lift a finger to help them. You remember that? All they would do is they would try to get it perfect and then they would judge anybody who wasn't getting it as right as they were. And Jesus says something. He says, for the judgment you pronounce, will be, you will be judged. The measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then if you turn over to Romans chapter 2, um, God's word says something similar there through Paul. He says, uh, therefore, he says, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And one of the things that we have to understand is that what was happening was people, the Pharisees in particular, uh, but Christians anywhere can do this, we begin to think that we're being graded on a curve. Anybody ever get graded on a curve before? It's wonderful. 
to be graded on a curve is great. Um, I remember being in school, high school, um, math was not my favorite subject. Can I get an amen? Amen. Um, And I wasn't bad at math. I just, I didn't really love it. It just was, you know, miserable. So, um, and if you love math, and I'm sorry, it it can be great. It can be great. Um, It's, you know, some people say it's like, it's God's language. Like he wrote math. But the thing was, there was a test, I remember that was, it was especially hard. The teacher told us ahead of time, this test is going to be graded on a curve because it's so hard. And we're like, yes, that means I can get like a 70 and still get a B, you know, because what, how grading on a curve works, the, the highest grade, whatever the highest grade is, becomes an A plus, right? And then you just grade on the curve from, from there. So... If the highest grade is an 87, 87 is now an A+. a plus. And if I get a 75, then I'm still getting a B. That's, that's wonderful, right? But the problem is, how many of you know, some joker in the class is going to get 100%. And then it throws the whole curve off because you, you don't get the grade on the curve if somebody gets 100%. And we always had that super smart person right? Who are you pointing at? <laughs> uh, so here's the deal. They, they were thinking, we're grading on a curve. If I'm at 87, that's, that's the best anybody's going to do, but all you other people. And, and Paul's saying what Jesus was saying, which is that, listen, God doesn't grade on a curve. Do you know that? He doesn't grade on a curve. God grades pass-fail. And that sounds good. Anybody love to take pass-fail classes? That sounds easy, except for you can only pass if you get 100% in God's grading system. 100% is it, and Jesus is 100%. That's why no other way, no other thing that you can do of your own effort, your own ability, your own moral code, your, mo- your own self-discipline, your own intelligence, your own understanding will not get you there. No matter how good it is, it's never going to be perfect. All you can do is trust Jesus Christ for your Lord and Savior, and that's 100%. So God gives the ability to every student, calls us all disciples, to get 100%, but you have to trust Jesus Christ. That's, that's his grading system. And so he begins to come back to say, listen, you're trying to grade on a curve. It doesn't work that way. Because at any point you break the law, what does the Bible say? At any point you break the law, you've broken what? The whole law. It's not as if you only break one and so you should get a 99. He says 100% is the standard. You have to get 100%. It's terrifying if you're trying to do it in your own strength. It's very encouraging when you know that Jesus Christ has already done it for you. So here's what happens is that <laughs> we read this. Okay, so the judgment you pronounce will be judged and you'll be measured with the measure that you use. So here's what a lot of Christians do. I'll just lower the standard. If he's going to judge me according to whatever measure I use, do you understand that this is, this is partly what the world tries to do when they say don't judge? They're trying to get Christians to lower the standard so that we can all just fit under the bar. Like we're just or over the bar. I always get that backwards. We want to lower it 
to the least common denominator so that we can all get in. So I'll just lower my standard so that it'll just be really easy. And that's not what he's saying. How many Christians know that's not what he's saying? He's not saying don't lower, he's not saying lower the bar. He's saying the standard is Christ. He's the only standard that God has for what it means to be saved, to go to heaven, to be righteous, to have eternal life, to have hope. It's Jesus Christ, and that's it. So he says, okay, um, you have some other issues to deal with. Besides that, you have that issue. Now you have another issue, um, which is in Romans 14. He talks about judging in a different way. He says, uh, for one uh, who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, etc., etc., etc. So what's going on here? is that we have another issue. So the first issue that we're dealing with is that Jesus Christ is the standard. We don't lower the standard. That's not the idea. But then, as a Christian, I have something else. So God has a moral code that is for everyone. Would you agree? That there are things that God says, I want you to abide by and do. I want there, there are things that you need to avoid. These are wrong that's across the board. That's for every human being. doesn't matter what culture. doesn't matter what your preference. doesn't matter your opinion. doesn't matter your age. This is God's standard. And then there are things that are your personal conviction that aren't spelled out in Scripture about what you ought to do or not to do. Like you can, it's a disputable matter in that sense. Now, uh, when it comes to personal conviction, uh, our personal conviction does not get to change God's standard. Okay, and what I mean is that um, God says adultery is wrong. Well, you can't say, well, I'm not convicted about that, so it doesn't matter to me, right? That's not a how conviction works. Uh, personal conviction had to do, and especially in this case, it was dealing with the Jewish people versus the Gentile people, and really the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, where the Jewish Christians were still abiding by certain uh, elements of their religion, like uh, um, resting on the Sabbath and their kosher eating laws and things like that. They were still doing that. And the Gentile Christians never grew up with that, and so they knew that that wasn't necessary. To be a Christian, you didn't have to become Jewish. And they, they were told this, that you don't have to become Jewish to become Christian. But some of the Jewish people were saying, you're not as spiritual as we are because we do this and you don't. And they're still judging each other based on the the disputable matters, the things that weren't in the, the moral code. So here's how this kind of works for me, okay, in this sense. Um, I have a conviction. I have a lot of personal convictions that aren't necessarily across the board for everyone. Okay, one is God has called me to ministry as a full-time pastor. Uh, that's a conviction of mine. I believe that that is God's will for my life. So how that works is that um, how this could work, okay? This is not hopefully the case, but how this could work is some people might say, because this is my conviction and this is God's calling on my life, then if I'm doing this, then I'm more spiritual than somebody else who's not. You ever, you ever have the sense, man, this is a dangerous question. Oh, well. So, you ever have the sense that 
some pastors believe that they're more spiritual than you are? Because, just because they're a pastor, just because they're, they're in ministry, like I'm, I'm automatically more spiritual. And that's a lie. Okay, that's not true. Um, or, you know, here's, here's another, here's a conviction of mine. Um, I don't drink. I don't drink at all. I don't drink ever. Uh, alcohol. Um, <laughs> just in case you're wondering, yes, I do drink water and other things, but that's a conviction of mine. I believe that that's God's will for my life. I, uh, I think it'd be good if more people had that conviction, but I also believe what the Bible says, which is that drinking in moderation is not sinful. Now, the key word is moderation, but here's what happens. Here I am, I don't drink. Those who do drink are less spiritual than me. Right? And this is whatever your conviction is. It doesn't matter what your conviction is. Your conviction, if it's a disputable matter, a thing that God has called you to, it's God's will for your life. You said, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to raise my kids this way. I'm going to, to work this way. I'm going to live this way. And it's not something clearly spelled out in the scripture, but it's just something you believe in your heart that God's called you to. You have to be careful that you don't begin to believe that that makes you more spiritual than somebody who has a different conviction on a disputable matter. You, you see what I'm saying? This is what he's talking about when he's referring to this issue of judging people according to things that are your opinion. It's fine to have your opinion. It's great to live by your convictions. But when you begin to position yourself, the Pharisees were doing this. They were doing this in terms of, of uh, human tradition, not according to the law. They had all kinds of human traditions. And they would actually hold to a human tradition and break the law and still think that they were more spiritual than other people who didn't hold to their tradition. It's kind of a crazy, ironic situation going on. But we can do the same thing. And so here's three things that you have to understand about convictions. One is that if you have a conviction and you believe God has called you into a certain way, a certain lifestyle, a certain thing that you're supposed to do, not do, whatever it might be, um, it is a sin for you to break your conviction. It's not a sin for somebody else to do what you're convicted about if, if they're not convicted, but if you're convicted about it then, and then you do it, then you're sinning. That's between you and the Lord. He's called you. He's revealed that to you for how you're supposed to live. So for, for me, maybe, maybe I have a potential to become an alcoholic. I don't know. And God says, stay away from alcohol altogether. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I'm going to live according to my conviction. If I break that, then I'm sinning and I need to repent of that. The other thing is that it is a sin for me to try to apply my conviction to you if you're not convicted about it and judge you according to my conviction. And how often do people do this where they, they believe one thing for themselves and then if you don't do it also, and this is what the Jewish people were doing, the Jewish Christians to the Gentile Christians, since you don't you know, rest on the Sabbath, you're not as holy as we are. You're sinning. And, and Paul, especially in his letters, would come back over and over and over. And Paul is a Jewish rabbi. Paul knows the law backwards and forwards. And he had the gospel given to him directly from Christ. And he had everything he knew as much as anybody is going to know. God revealed it to him about 
how to live as a Christian. And Paul says, that's not how this works. You don't become a Jew in order to become a Christian. In fact, if you try to obey the law and abide by the law, then you become slaves to the law, and you're going to forfeit the grace that you had in Christ. So don't, don't worry about what other people are trying to impose on you. You listen to the Lord on the convictions that he's putting on your life and your heart. That's where you need to live. But you don't put those convictions on somebody else. You can talk about them. You can reveal what your convictions are, but you cannot impose them on somebody else. Then the third thing is, it is also a sin. It sounds judgmental, doesn't it? But it's a, it's a sin for you to try to break somebody else of their conviction. So, like I said, like my conviction, uh, my conviction is to be a pastor. I believe God's called me to that, that his will for my life. It'd be a sin for you to try to convince me to quit. <laughs> now, <laughs> I have to qualify that. What if a pastor becomes disqualified for ministry? Well, that, that'd be a different scenario, but not just because you don't like me, Okay just so we know. So here's the thing. As we're seeing the judging, right judging, wrong judging, how this thing works, we, we, we come to these other passages and we're like, well, what about this? And so James chapter 2 also talks about judging in a different way. He says, my brothers, uh, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring, fine clothes, comes to your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you sit here in a good place, and, and then there's a poor man, you stand over there. Okay, Favoritism based on outward appearance. But it's not just favoritism based on outward appearance. It's kind of this issue of there are some people... How can I say this correctly? We can be inclined to think that some people are more spiritual based on how much alike we are than other people who are not really like us. Um, so some people are favor those who are wealthy. They, they, you look nice, you wear nice clothes, you drive a nice car. We kind of think, well, this is the kind of person we want in our church, and uh, we'll be really kind and nice and try to welcome and, and make sure that they feel really comfortable in our church. But that other person who's you know, not dressed as nice and maybe doesn't have a nice car or doesn't have a car at all or needs help and they have an issue, they, you know, whatever it is, and you say, well, you know, if they don't come back, well, that's okay. And listen, we can flip-flop that on the other scenario. Um, we've been to El Salvador so many times. Oftentimes, we'll come back from El Salvador and we'll hear people say, and, and I'm, there's nothing, I I'm always feel like I'm probably saying the wrong thing, okay, but we come back from El Salvador, the people there are so genuine in their worship, they're so, they, they're so happy that we're there and uh, there's so much joy that you feel. And sometimes you come back and you think, here's what we really need. We need to get rid of our buildings and all of our big programs and, just, and, and not have so much stuff and really just be kind of more simple. Like those who have less stuff are more spiritual than those who have more stuff. 
Is that really true, though? And here's what you have to understand. Are there godly, wealthy people? Yes. Are there godly, poor people? Are there ungodly, wealthy people? Are there ungodly, poor people? Does having wealth or not having wealth make you more spiritual? But it, it even goes beyond that. It's not about wealth or appearance or skin color. Or it's, it's really about this issue is that the gospel is for everyone. For every single person, no matter who they are, no matter what their, their economic condition, no matter their, their ethnic condition, no matter their social condition, no matter their disposition towards anything, the gospel is for everyone. Everyone uh, can come to Jesus Christ and be saved and, and become a new creation in Christ. It's, but we, as the church, have to invite and welcome and, and ex- extend the invitation to everyone equally. We don't favor one person over another. We don't withhold the gospel from one person over another. The gospel is for everyone, and we share it freely, graciously. We give it generously, just like it was generously given to us. Amen? That's what the favoritism thing is about. It's that we're making these judgments. We're predetermining who's more spiritual than somebody else. You cannot tell that by their outward appearance. And so we share the gospel, we give it out, and we let the Lord do His work. So here's what we do. We come back to... Matthew 7, and we say, well, what is right judging? What are, we, what are we supposed to do here? It says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but not notice the log that's in your own eye? Okay, first of all, he says, um, the Pharisees, and he's primarily talking to religious people. You and I, if you're in this church, I'm not saying that you are definitely a religious person, but you're more likely to be, right? So the likelihood is that You and I, as people who are more religious, tend to have this problem more than others, which is that we get blind to our problem because what we're doing is we're seeing the the sin of the world. And we talk about this a lot. I do, maybe, maybe a lot more than I should, but we talk about the sinful state of the world. It's dark. The immorality is is ramping up. It's not decreasing. It's there, it's scary how things are progressing, right? Like I said, I talk about it too much. But what happens is we start to see ourselves as we're set apart from that. We're holy. We're good. We're good with God. We don't have problems. We're not really the problem. That's the problem out there. We're the solution. And we become blind, become prideful to the fact that we are still people in need. We are people who need the Lord, that I need the Lord just as much as the people out there. The, the, the reality is I've received the Lord. So I, I, thankfully, I have the solution, but that doesn't mean that I'm pure and perfect in every area of my life. I still need Christ to correct and, and encourage and, and convict and show me and give me the light. And I, and I was just thinking about you know, this, this morning how you know, there are... So many things that when I was younger that I was off, I was wrong, I was immoral, I was, I was incorrect about how I treated people, I was, I was prone to addictions. I mean, I had all kinds of things that were wrong in my life, and God has brought me to a place where 
I don't have most of those issues anymore, but why am I here instead of back there where I was? Because I'm so self-disciplined and strong and smart? I mean, is that, is that how this happened? No, it's, it's only through Christ. If, if I had not found Christ when I was in college, then I would still be as immoral and reckless and stupid as I was when I was 18. And so would you, right? I mean, it's just like, why would I take any pride in, in this? It wasn't me. It was the Lord in me. And, and I'm still not where I should be, but I'm better than I was. But I can get full of myself. I can get prideful about that and say, man, I'm just so glad I'm not like that person and what they're doing and how they haven't figured it out after 50 years. Well, they need the Lord, just like I continue every day to need the Lord. And so here's what happens is that you have to take that log out of your eye. Well, you have to recognize that there is a log in your eye, right? That's humility. The first thing that God wants, desires, requires for you and me is to humble yourself before the Lord. And he says, he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord. It means that I have to recognize that I fall short in myself of whatever God's standard is, I fall short. It's only Christ that meets that standard. And I thank the Lord that he, he has given Christ to me. Amen. That's the first part. But that's not the only part. The second part is I need to have the wisdom to know how to take the log out. So the first part is humility to recognize that there's a log. The second part is the wisdom to say, okay, I need to get that out of my life. I have to put some disciplines in my life. I have to read God's word. I need to learn what it says. I need to have accountability around me. I need to have my church family around me to keep me on that path. I need to make sure that I am praying and, and repenting of things continually before the Lord. And repentance is not like a one-time thing, like, okay, God, I'm sorry for that thing in my past. Repentance is, a, is an attitude that you have before the Lord that, God, I'm sorry for the sins that I continue to commit, and I'm going to bring those to the Lord. I'm going to be wise enough to recognize that there are things that I just continue to struggle with, and I bring those to God and let Him heal me, and I continue to bring those to the Lord. So I'm not beating myself up every day, like, oh, I'm such a worm, and I can't ever get it right. I mean, I'm... T- but it is a matter of, I recognize, here's God's standard, it's Christ, here's where I am, I'm not there, but I'm going to continue to seek after His standard. And that means I have to be repentant and honest. So the last thing, though, is that as you are honest with God about yourself, then you can become honest with other people about what's going on in their life. You don't have really much of a, a right to, to talk to other people about what's going on if you're not humble and honest with yourself. Would you agree? It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. This is where a lot of Christians get hamstrung. They just they won't say anything to anybody because they think they have to be perfect, and that's what the world tells you, that if you're not perfect, you're a hypocrite. That's not true. Living a, a repentant life and living a life that's honest with the Lord and humble is, is his standard. Okay, That's where he says you're on the path. But you have to be honest about how that is working out in your life so you can help somebody else. Once you're working down that path, then you say to other people, here's what God's standard is for all of us. This is what God wants. And there's a couple of things that you have to understand about that. The, the church today has an issue 
that uh, we're so... It's two things. We want more people in the church. Would you agree? We want more people in the church. Most churches do. Um, and we don't want to hurt people and offend people. Would you? Would, that's true, right? I mean, you wouldn't know it from listening to me week to week, but generally, that's true. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. And so here's the thing, is that we become um, so afraid of, of losing anybody by saying something that they might not want to hear that we begin to water down the gospel and we begin to water down the, God's standard and his morals and, and his will and his ethics and, and we begin to just make it as easy as possible so that everybody... And the idea is they'll come in and we'll kind of... You hear about the analogy of the frog in the water and you kind of turn up the heat slowly and then they finally get boiled and they don't realize it. Like it's kind of like that. We'll kind of we'll come in, and they won't really know that we're preaching the gospel to them for a while, and then finally, eventually, they'll just get saved somehow. And I'm telling you that that issue, that what desire, that strategy, whatever you want to call it, um, has made the church um, ineffective. We don't, we don't preach the truth. We don't preach God's word. We don't tell people that sin is, is, is what it is and that it's separating them from God and that, that without Jesus Christ, they're going to go to hell. We don't tell the world that. We don't say hell anymore, right? We, that's just a bad word. And, and so the church doesn't say hell. We don't want really anybody to think that hell is a real place and we want people to feel bad about sin and we don't want them to leave the church before they hear about Jesus. And so we keep things really you know, watered down and easy and, and accessible and edible and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm saying that the church has become largely ineffective because we won't tell people that uh, they need a Savior. And as Christian people, listen, <laughs> you might hear the gospel on a Sunday morning in a church, but then when we go out into our workplaces or into our families or into our conversations with our friends or wherever we go and the things that we do, are we still willing to say, this is how I'm living as a Christian, here's what's wrong with the world, and uh, I'm not judging, it's not my place to judge, God will judge in the end, but here's the truth about sin and its destructive nature. Here's the truth about who God is and the fact that you need Jesus Christ. Are we individually willing to, to say that? And largely... The answer is no. We, we, we're, we're afraid to say that. And the reason why is because of what we didn't read here in the last part of this passage in verse 6. It says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Here's a spiritual reality. When you speak the truth, even in love, there are people that will be angry at you. They will hate you. They will actually um, be very offended by you, and they will turn and attack you. Maybe not physically. Maybe they will attack you physically. Who is Jesus talking about in that passage? Give dogs what is holy, um, or your pearls before pigs. They'll trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Who is he talking about? Who, who turned and attacked Jesus? We think of, well... It must have been the world, you know, because that's, that's what we think of as the church. The world 
the pigs and the dogs. That's, it's unclean. It's people who don't know the Lord, people who are not religious, not biblical, not holy in any way. He's talking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the priests. That's, that's who he's talking about. The people who are so prideful that they're self-righteous, that they don't need anything that he had to give. He didn't, they didn't need a savior. They didn't need instruction. They didn't need understanding. They didn't need to be better. They were already as good as they could be. And there's a couple things you got to understand. One is that sometimes that'll happen in the church and we become self-righteous. But we also have a world that because they're not hearing about what sin is and about hell and about the Savior and about the Lord, they've become self-righteous. You realize our world has become self-righteous? They think they're completely justified to live as wickedly as they, they want to live. Without any retribution, without any contradiction, without any reprisal. They, just, they can do whatever they want. And nobody should say anything about it. In fact, if you say that any sexual sin is a sexual sin, then, then you're being judgmental and condemning. And so there's self-righteousness. Here's what you got to understand. There's a time, and we're in it, where we've, we've talked about that passage many times. Well, if you throw your pearls before pigs, they're going to trample them. So what we end up doing is we're just going to protect ourselves. I don't want to get trampled, so I'm not going to say anything hurtful or harmful or truthful. But what did Jesus do? He said, here's the truth, and he went to the cross. He was willing to be trampled. He was willing to be beaten. He was willing to be crucified in order to share the truth. And, and there's a time coming, and I believe we're in it, where the church has to be and Christians have to be willing to take some punches from the world because we're going to speak the truth. And stop being afraid that we're going to be rejected. Guess what? You will be rejected. That's what it says. You will be hated for the truth that you're going to share. That's what it says. It says that they're, you're not going to, they're not going to like it. They're not going to accept it and they'll be glad that you told them. But here's the deal. For as many people as reject it, you, you will see some people that will receive it. And here's what I love about our church, and I always say this, but we have a church where we are willing to speak the truth in love, and people continue to come. They continue to come. They continue to hear. And some people get saved. Some people hear, and they leave. Some people hear, they get mad, they get offended, and they don't come back. But week after week, people are coming because guess what? You're going to get the unvarnished truth of God's Word, and you can do what you want with it. Nobody can make you accept it or reject it. That's up to you. But you're going to get the truth of God's Word. And some people who didn't know that they needed a Savior are going to learn that they need a Savior. And if it's only one person gets saved because they hear about Jesus Christ, then we're, we're rejoicing as a church because we we're willing to get a little bit beat up in order to see somebody saved. Jesus was willing to take all the pain and punishment on the cross that some might believe. I don't know how, how better to say this. The church has to get to a point right now, I believe, right now in our culture where we have to be willing to be hated in order to make sure that we're getting the truth of God's word out there. Because there may not be too many others that are willing to do that. And the world needs it. Amen?
So don't let the world tell you, don't judge me and try to silence you. That's what Satan does. He loves to say, keep your mouth shut. If I can't get you to sin, I'll just keep you silent. And, and we're in a place where we have to be honest. We're not the judge. We're not the ones who are going to be right there at the judgment day telling people they're going to heaven or hell. But we are the watchmen on the wall who tell people what the truth is for their good. Amen? Father, we love you. God, we pray that we have a spirit uh, that is bold, courageous, willing uh, to share the truth, Lord. We want to share it with all the love that you did. Uh, we want to share it with all the, the compassion necessary, Father, that we care for people. That it's not about us. It's not about us being right. It's not about us being more spiritual. It's not about us being anything. It's about you being glorified and people being helped. There does come a point once we've removed the log from our eye where we are able and we need to help people with the speck in their eye. Lord, help us to do that. And we know some people are going to be agitated by that, Father. We, we pray for wisdom to know when the right time is, but not to be silenced because we're always afraid that we're, our word is going to be rejected. Lord, it's going to be rejected. More times than not, than not it's going to be encountered uh, with, with people who don't want to hear it. But there are some that will hear it, respond to it. Father, that is all that you want. As many as possible, come to your kingdom. And you're the one who saves. You're the one who takes that word, plants it, uh, makes it grow. But you've called us to be the farmers who spread the seed, who share it out freely, gladly, willingly, boldly. Uh, help us to do that, Father. It's scary. <laughs> but we, we're living in a scary time. So raise us up for such a time as this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you this morning. I always think, man, there's two things, always. One is, if you need Christ as your Savior, you need to receive Him this morning as your Lord. Please do that right now. You, you don't know. You don't know how much time you have on this earth. And today is the day of salvation. Now's the moment. If He's calling you, He's Placing that on your heart, would you come to the altar? Would you just lay your life down and, and, and receive Jesus Christ? The second thing, though, is that so many of us have been afraid and really just almost paralyzed to share our faith uh, because of the fear of rejection. And I just want to encourage you, if there's anybody that God has put on your heart to share your faith with, um, would you just come and lay that person down at the altar and say, God... However you want to do this, I'm willing. Show me the way, but I want to share the gospel with so-and-so. And that's probably a person he's already been laying on your heart, and this morning is just a confirmation that you need to do something. You need to do it sooner than later. Amen? Let's stand and sing.